You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 42 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are happy to have joining us NTSB Managing Director Sharon Bryson and Frank Hildrup, the Chief Technical Advisor for International Affairs in the Office of Aviation Safety, to talk about NTSB's investigation of TWA Flight 800. On July 17, 1996, TWA Flight 800, a Boeing 747, broke apart in flight shortly after takeoff from New York's JFK Airport. As a result of this in-flight breakup, all 230 people aboard the flight died. Thank you for joining us today. We are, like Stephanie said, very excited to talk with you. We are going to be discussing today the TWA 800 flight that occurred in July of 1996. And before we get going, we uh, always have a custom of allowing our guests to introduce themselves. And uh, I'm happy today that uh, Sharon and Frank, you are on the podcast for the first time. So we are very excited to learn more about you and then also talk about this uh, accident investigation. So Sharon, if you'd get us started, if you could please give us a brief uh, background on what brought you to the board, how long you've been at the board, kind of your, your bio, if you will. Sure, I'll I'll talk about that very briefly. Ironically, I was not at the board when the accident occurred on July 17, 1996. I was at Dover Air Force Base uh, serving as the Family Support Center Director and providing support to the Dover Air Force Base mortuary. We had just prior to that uh, done the recovery from the Dubrovnik, Croatia accident where Secretary Brown was killed. Um, we did the reception center, the memorial services, all of those things uh, for the families that were killed in that crash. And shortly after that, um, I was out providing a presentation on how to do and build large-scale uh, family assistance centers in the aftermath of these kinds of disasters. And an employee of the NTSB was sitting in the audience, um, and the board had just received the the statutory responsibility for family assistance, and they were trying to figure out how to staff the office and execute that particular responsibility. And so we began a long discussion of, you know, can you help us? Can you, um, you know, would you consider working for us? Those kinds of things. And I came to the board for the purpose of um, helping them to build out a family assistance program, which today is called the Transportation Disaster Assistance Program. Mm -hmm. Um, which came about as a result of concerns raised by families from this particular accident and by the accident prior to that, the Pittsburgh 427 accident, and prior to that, the value jet accident. So TWA kind of culminated um, in the need for family assistance, and I happened to be sort of in that business um, helping the Department of Defense at that time, so... I ended up coming to the board. I thought I would be there a couple of years, and uh, I'm now fast approaching year 24. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, we're happy to have you. And Frank, would you give us uh, your background as well? Well, Sharon's just a baby if she's only been here 24 years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, it was a long time ago. I mean, I, I have an aerospace engineering degree from Virginia Tech. Uh, and my first couple of jobs, uh, were in the area, but they were in the defense industry and, uh, it it was okay, but, um, you know, I had started working on my private pilot's license. So I was getting more interested in, you know, kind of commercial aviation. And along the way, I think, you know, uh, most everybody, I think, knows about the NTSB to some degree, and I, I certainly did, but I didn't know everything, but I just knew it was the kind of place that would be a, a great fit for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I strongly believe it was just a matter of good timing. I mean, I kind of reached out, and, and uh, there was a, a posting, and, and I got the job. And um, so I've been at the board for, for um, you know, almost 33 years now. So I started in 1988, uh, and I would say that my – you know, my time at the NTSB has been kind of uh, split in thirds. I mean, my first 10 years or so, um, I was in the engineering division and went out on a lot of accidents, uh, uh, primarily structures investigator, but also other air witness issues. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the, uh, the, the second third, if you will, was really as an investigator in charge, um, in the majors investigations division and also, uh, you know, what we call U.S. accredited representative. Uh, people may not realize the amount of work that the NTSB does, uh, in working with other governments, uh, in accidents that occur overseas, primarily that involve U.S., uh, you know, products, aircraft, things like that. Mm-hmm. So that, t- that takes us overseas quite a bit sometimes too. And then the last third, I would say, of my career is where I am now as, as, uh, kind of, uh, kind of helping to shepherd international affairs and uh, working with other governments, with our own government, with a United Nations uh, specialized agency called uh, ICAO that people may, may know. There's okay. just a, there's a lot of interaction that goes on uh, with other countries. And it's, it's, been a, it's been a great job and a great career, and I've, I've loved every minute of it. Great. That's great. So as I uh, mentioned before, on July 17th, 1996, TWA flight 800 exploded shortly after takeoff over the Atlantic Ocean <clears throat> near York, excuse me near New York. Frank, can you summarize the events of the crash and what was determined to be the probable cause? Yeah. So, uh, well, first off, the airplane was, you know, uh, uh, the, the the accident occurred probably about ten or twelve minutes after takeoff. So it was it was not uh, in flight very long. But I would say, as, as most accidents that we do, uh, certainly the, the larger ones, it's never one thing. And that was the case, obviously, here with this one. It, the, the airplane was um, um, on, the, on the tarmac for, for an extended period. So it was a hot day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had to run the air conditioners for the airplane. We call them air conditioning packs. And they are located uh, just directly below the center wing tank. So in the middle of where the two wings come together into the fuselage, there's okay. also a center wing tank. And so there was uh, the, there was just a little bit of fuel there. That fuel that fuel tank was not being utilized to, to uh, for the flight. So all the fuel was really in the wings, and there was just a little bit of residual fuel left in the center wing tank. But the heat. Primarily of those, you know, the, of the air conditioning packs heated up the fuel and essentially produced the vapors that could then ignite. So you had, in a way, the circumstances, you had everything except for that spark and, um, you know, the, the ignition source. And we spent a lot of time trying to sort out what that may have been. We certainly knew through testing and, and a lot of other work that we did to know that the fuel was warm enough to kind of vent or, or produce the vapors that would be in, in turn flammable. So it really was a matter of trying to find out what what that that spark or ignition source may have been, and it it, it took quite a while. And of course, you know, it's tough to find evidence, uh, you know, forensic evidence of a spark, right? Sure. But we we did a lot of work to try to figure out what may have been involved. And I would also say, as with a lot of investigations, we're ruling things out as we go along the way. We're we're uh, concluding uh, as we go along through the analysis that this did not or could not have happened. But all along the way, it was leading us to the idea that it was a short circuit in the wiring in the in the fuel uh, indicating system for that center wing tank. There was a short circuit that introduced that that missing element, that spark, that then led to the explosion. And when you when you uh, explain it that way, uh, you know, in such a short summary, it seems almost like simple. But I know that this was absolutely the opposite of a simple investigation. Can you talk a little bit about what really stood out for this investigation and and kind of the NTSB experience? Sure. I mean, uh, I, I can speak I uh, certainly to, from a personal standpoint, but I think it pretty much represents the agency because I've been there so long and I've done so many uh, different investigations with different folks over the years. It's Certainly for me, it was the biggest investigation I was ever involved in, the most extensive, and your questions are spot on. I mean, I, I did summarize it a little bit quickly there, but this was a four-year investigation, right? And, mm-hmm. and we, we did considerable testing uh, w- with respect to fuel tank flammability, uh, with respect to, uh, um, you know, what could ignite uh, this fuel tank, and, and what, what, what type, what are the things that can happen to wiring to compromise the wiring to introduce short circuits, things like that. So there was, it was a, a massive amount of, uh, of work that was going on for over all these years. And also, uh, it, it, we really need to, um, acknowledge the way the NTSB works and, and most all of its major investigations anyway. But in, in all of them, I would say is we have this thing called the party system. We have 
a process that uh, we utilize expertise from other uh, other entities, the FAA, the operators. In this case, the FBI was uh, heavily involved because of the um, the possibility that this could have been a, a bomb. Uh, and, and, and certainly we, there was discussion about eventually whether a missile could have been involved. So we work very, very closely with the FBI. We're a small agency and we really, you know, we, we need to rely on, uh, we need to leverage our resources with others that are out there. And that's, that's what we did here, but we did it in a, uh, in a way that I think was larger than anything I'd ever done. And, uh, and so we, we really continued along the way as we typically do, but there was a lot of, aspects to this one that we had to evaluate. We were continuing to keep things in focus, but along the way we were ruling things out. And one mm-hmm. of those things I would say is is the idea of a bomb or a missile being involved in this. And, and you know, uh, there, there's plenty I could say about that too, but I, from my perspective, uh, you know, the thing that stands out to me the most is the amount of wreckage that we recovered as part of this. We knew it was this not the kind of thing we can tolerate again in industry. Um, and so we went to great lengths to recover the airplane, all the parts we could recover, 95 to 98%. And then we uh, went forth with a, a reconstruction uh, that, that was expanded at some point. But we knew how important it was to not only prove to ourselves, but to the FBI with their help and to others and to the traveling public. To, to demonstrate that we have done everything possible to recover and examine and determine what, what this wreckage was telling us, along with all the other evidence that, that went into this one. And before we, before we move, move along, I just want to ask, and this is a question that can be for uh, Frank particularly, but also for Sharon, um, what, what went through your head when you first were notified of this, of this uh Accident, and did you have any idea that this would be kind of a pivotal um, investigation that you'd be involved in? I know that every NTSB investigation um, brings up uh, really important information. We come up with really important re- uh, recommendations, but this, as we'll get into our discussion along the way, had some really significant impacts on the aviation industry. And as this was kind of unfolding on the first day or two, did you have any idea that it would be so massive? Uh, well, on, on some aspects, I mean, the uh, you're in the in, a, in many respects the media capital of the world in New York, so the the mm-hmm. the, the, the focus and pressure was intense. You know, the uh, I would also say, I mean, this is this is a catastrophic accident in any any way you define it, and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and airplanes don't just do this. Uh, there have been a rare occasions, certainly when there's been going way back in the archives with a lightning strike that could have ignited a fuel tank. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, it's an extremely rare event. I will say that in my first year or two with the board, I, I did a couple of bombing investigations that were overseas. So it's not unprecedented, but certainly that was a thought in my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. And then by the time we get up to Long Island, and here's little NTSB with our, our GO team, and there are literally hundreds of FBI agents up there. So I can just mm-hmm. say from my, uh, you know, doing their job. and and But from my perspective, I had that first morning we were up there, um, I, I had the idea that they knew something that we didn't, quite honestly, that they, mm-hmm. through their job, through their intel work and, and their expertise in, in bombings and, and what have you, that ultimately this was something that they may end up taking over the investigation, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the NTSB really does not investigate criminal intentional acts. And, and so in my mind, um, I really was... I was very curious. I was really wondering if it's something, if we're not going to be up there for so long because this may become a criminal uh, investigation that we would assist with, but we wouldn't perhaps lead. So that was definitely a, a thought in my mind. Um, but, uh, you know, that started to fade into the background. The more work we did, mm-hmm. uh, the more recovery that we did, uh, the, the, was, we started to look at the, the evidence uh, I'll just say uh, briefly, and, and we can we can follow up on it later. But the the evidence that exists from a what I would say a bomb uh, or any high energy explosion is so different than other types of uh, damage you would have from a fuel type explosion. So it became very apparent to us that that's not what we were dealing with. But it was um, it was important for us to stay the course a little bit because it was so easy to get distracted and pulled in one direction or another, at least early on. Uh, but it was uh, it was overwhelming. I would just say when we first got up there. Sure. Right. 
Sharon, when we do as an agency suspect that maybe a criminal act was involved with something, it's definitely a, a game changer with how the NTSB investigates or, or our role in that. And so, as Frank mentioned, there were a lot of people on scene and, and people involved in this investigation. Can you share a little bit about the NTSB party process and kind of how that worked with this particular investigation and then how through this investigation we ended up with an MOU with the FBI for moving forward when we we did find ourselves in those positions. Yeah, well the party party system, the party process has been in place at the safety board for a very long time and I think the components of that with industry um, and the NTSB, our regular process, I think, worked very well. The difference in this particular one was the the involvement of the FBI at such a significant level and those early beliefs that it was, in fact, a criminal event and all of those right. things that, that took place in terms of who was the lead, you know, a little bit unclear in terms of whether the FBI was in the lead or the NTSB was in the lead. Um, and what has, I think, come from that, and I, I use the term, you know, dueling that, you know, you had the chairman of the NTSB speaking and you also had the director of the FBI um, in New York speaking and the public just wasn't exactly sure, number one, who's in charge and number two, where should we really get our information from? And so following that, there was clarification in the in the statute that says basically the NTSB is the lead until such a time that we believe um, or the FBI believes that there's that there's a possibility of a criminal event. And then we have a process that is used in order to make that a more orderly um, uh, delivery. But the other thing we learned very quickly was that we had to we we the NTSB had to figure out how to get along better with all of our federal partners. And so we set out to build those relationships. Uh, we have an agreement with the FBI. We also have an agreement with the Coast Guard and a number of other organizations, our federal partners, so that there's a much more seamless, a much more collaborative approach um, to working on these kind of events. Um, since TW, we've worked on a number of accident investigations where the FBI has supported us. Um, in several instances, the FBI was conducting a concurrent criminal investigation, mm, um, sure. but the NTSB was taking the lead in terms of the release of information and um, the conduct of the investigation. Today, um, you see a very uh, collaborative approach. The FBI helps us on a regular basis, quietly behind the scenes generally, um, and we return that favor to them when we have expertise that they can use. It's a it's a much better, more effective working relationship. Sure. So as a result of this investigation, uh, the NTSB issued safety recommendations that really fundamentally changed the way that aircraft are designed. Frank, could you please discuss the significance of the investigation and the safety benefits that resulted from the adoption of these safety recommendations? Sure. I, I think the, the most uh, important uh, uh, issue and the, the most important set of recommendations that we made, uh, and, and by the way, these were not made, these were made within uh, the year of the, of the accident itself. So it was late, I believe, December of 1996. The, the safety board is not going to wait to make recommendations uh, if we see issues. And we, mm -hmm. we do that routinely. And of course, we also have recommendations that go come in come out with the final report, as we did in this case, too. But the the initial set of recommendations that the NTSB made were, were to me, the most uh, dramatic and, and uh, important. And those involved, um, you know, fuel tank flammability. We knew that that was, that was you know, there's different ways you can try to uh, remove this process that could lead to an explosion. You, you, you can remove the fuel you can remove the, the oxygen, you can remove the ignition source. And um, generally speaking, I think the mindset at the time was more about minimizing or, or removing the prospect of a, an ignition, of a short. Mm -hmm. And we felt uh, that that was just not the right place to be. It's almost impossible. There's so much wiring in aircraft. 
Uh, and, and so our focus turned more to the solution of making sure that they were not flammable. The fuel tanks were not going to be flammable. And without prescribing exactly what needed to be done, that was the, the, that was the focus of, of one of the most important things that came out of this investigation is recommending to the FA that they find ways to require that the, the flammability of fuel tanks simply uh, will not be such that they could be ignited. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we, we stuck with that for many years. That, that issue was on our most wanted list for over 10 years. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it, it was, uh, hugely important. Um, and, and I think it also demonstrates again, you know, not, uh, stay the course again, follow what we do and, and keep the pressure on. And, and the safety board did that. And, um, it took over 10 years, but eventually the FA uh, working with industry was uh, able to find a way that that would work, I would say, a little bit with industry and, and, and with a technology that you could inert um, certain fuel tanks to basically what you're doing is removing the, you're decreasing the flammability level in these fuel tanks such that if there were still an ignition source, it simply would not ignite. That, that to me, is the biggest takeaway um, um, from this investigation. Uh, but we, we still, we still made many recommendations to address the other part of that, the wiring issues. There's a lot of different ways wiring can, um, uh, you know, it can be compromised, uh, through different ways. And we learned some of those through the investigation and some of those we knew already, but we addressed that issue, uh, very strongly too. But for me, it's the, the fuel tank flammability and the, and the success that that, um, you know, looking back on, on, uh, on that issue that we've, we've enjoyed. Speaking before uh, before we move on, just speaking of the wiring, uh, as a non aviation person myself, um, <laughs> when I get into an airplane, I see no wires. I see no wires. However, um, when you see the um, TWA eight hundred um, in the hangar, what we've reconstructed, which we'll get into a little bit later, wires are everywhere, everywhere. And that's something that I don't know if everyone who is not involved in the aviation community really understands how much wiring is involved in an airplane. Well, it's true. I mean, there, there's uh, wiring that's used for all kinds of aspects. The, the important thing, I think, that, um, again, that was, was not a, a novel idea at the time, but the, the importance of, uh, in a way, maintenance of wiring to make sure that the wiring is holding up, that the, the insulation is not being compromised. If the insulation is mm-hmm. there, then you can prevent a short circuit. Um, but also the idea of separating wires, making sure that uh, the wires, certain wires cannot touch if that, even if they're compromised. Mm-hmm. We think that's what happened in this accident. We did, we do know that's what happened in this accident where you had a higher energy, higher voltage wiring. Uh, from another wire bundle that came into contact with this very, very low voltage um, wiring associated with the indicating system for that fuel tank. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, there's quite a bit of wiring uh, involved in airplanes. Uh, uh, you know, most of it you won't see it because it's hidden by all the panels <laughs> and everywhere else. Uh, but uh, but no, there, there's um, there, there's been I would just acknowledge there's been a lot of issues uh, by industry since this accident and probably a little bit before as well. But there's what we would call aging aircraft issues, which is which were an issue going back into the 80s uh, or really coming onto the forefront in the 80s that involved more about fatigue and corrosion of the structure. But likewise, there's a parallel effort that's been going on for many years within industry and the FAA about aging wiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of wiring, but I think uh, hopefully we can take some faith that the right things are being done to make sure that the wiring is is, is staying healthy, I would say. Absolutely. Frank, I, I I have had the opportunity over the years to hear, you know, different presentations by NTSB investigators about this particular investigation. And I think it's easy, you know, we're talking about TWA Flight 800, but what was the the risk? I You know, you're, you're mentioning that we were, we made a recommendation for a significant redesign of, a, you know, part of the aircraft, but were there other instances where, um, there had had been other explosions like this that certainly didn't result in in what we had here with TW800. But what was the risk to, you know, future flights or or really the traveling public at the time? Yeah, it, well, the first part of the question, there were a couple of other events that occurred, and um, 
they were after the TWA explosion. So they were after that accident. Uh, and they were, I believe, both overseas. And I, I'm trying to remember the details of those. But, but they were after we made recommendations, after we knew what the issues were, but before the FAA had, um, had uh, uh, mandated some of the changes. So for us, it was more proof that this issue is still out there, this concern is still out there. From a risk standpoint, uh, and I, by the way, I know at least one of those was an explosion on the ground. So I, I, I'd have to go back and look at what the other one was. But, but the fact that it could still happen, that it still did happen, the risk, even without those, the, it's, it's the kind of thing that, that we can't tolerate. It's, it's catastrophic, non-survivable, uh, and that was the way the NTSB approached this. But in seeing and knowing that other events are continuing to occur, not too often, fortunately, but mm-hmm. that it's still a risk out there. It's not a risk that is acceptable at all. And that that was what really drove our um, uh, our involvement and 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 staying on point with this with uh, FA and industry. Sure. Sharon, as a result of the investigation, certainly a tremendous impact on, on aviation safety and, and the design of aircraft. But another significant change that came about um, from TWA 800 and certainly the, the care of family members was, was already being um, looked at and, and considered. But this really moved into the, um, the establishment of what NTSB now has as our Transportation Disaster Assistance Division. Can you explain how how TW800 impacted that and the signing of the Family Assistance Care Act? Sure. The uh, Yes, you're right, Stephanie, that um, there were several accidents that where family members had already begun to talk to um, then Chairman Hall and then Managing Director Goltz, um, as well as their political representatives about um, the lack of information being provided to families, the lack of consulting with families on things like personal effects and um, the the return of their loved ones, the identification of their loved ones, a number of very um, deeply personal kinds of things that occur. And yet families at that point really hadn't been um, at the center of any of that. So following the crash of TW800, then President Clinton signed an executive order that put the NTSB as the lead federal agency for the coordination of federal resources. And that was followed shortly after that, very shortly after that, by the passage of the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act. That mm-hmm. act, again, had the NTSB serve as the center. What I, what I think is important with regard to family assistance is that doesn't mean that there weren't enough people or resources to help the families in the previous accident. It's really probably the opposite. There were so many that wanted to help, but there was no coordinated effort. And and the result of that was the ineffective delivery of services. So, So it really required an agency to be the primary agency of responsibility and to be the coordinator of all of those functions. And so the act did that. It required the industry to do certain things. It required us to designate a nonprofit organization, which we did, which was the American Red Cross. Um, and a number of other things are required in there. But I think one of the things that was most important out of the legislation is that it required um, a task force to be established. And that task force was to be comprised of um, federal agencies, family members, and mm-hmm. members from the industry. And out of that were 63 recommendations that were proposed where and put forth that they where they believed would um, change the way services were delivered to families in the future. All of those recommendations um, were adopted into what we call the family response plan, the federal family response plan. So, so those recommendations from the task force were incorporated into our federal response plan. So the way that TDA responds to an accident um, isn't just the way NTSB thinks it should be done, but it's the way that industry, family members, nonprofit organizations all came together to provide that direction. And I think that's likely why it has been as effective as it has been, because it incorporated the needs and the interests and the viewpoints of everyone that's impacted at that particular 
point in time, especially the the interests of the family members that um, obviously suffered the greatest loss when the accident occurred. I would say, how has how has the program expanded? So I know our original mandate authority is to provide assistance for um, a, the aviation um, accident investigations, but we are a multimodal agency. So how how do we meet the needs of you know the I guess the families and the, and the communities that we serve now through our investigations? Yeah. So it, the first place that you saw it expand was um, in the real in the two thousand and eight rail safety. Um, legislation where now passenger rail is required to have a family assistance plan in place and and so that families that are impacted on passenger rail will get the same kind of benefit and services that families on a major aviation accident um, would get. But in addition to that, I think that we have incorporated it into all of the work of the agency. So we provide support, TDA provides support to general aviation accidents, to the Marine Accident Division, to pipeline and hazardous materials. Um, and so every family that's impacted by a major transportation event that we investigate um, has a point of contact in the Office of Transportation Disaster Assistance. And that's primarily for the purpose of providing accident information giving them updates, letting them know what's happening with the investigation. But it's also an opportunity for them, if the families have unmet needs, to try and route them to uh, different resources and different different pieces of information that they might need um, to deal with the aftermath of the event. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so, Sharon, um, Stephanie and I had an opportunity to take the TDA 301 course a couple of years ago, and it was amazing to see, first of all, how many different uh, entities attended the training. Um, we had different countries represented attending our training, um, and it was so th- so well thought out and put together and organized that it really gave me a non, um, non-investigator, non-transportation uh, uh, disaster assistance person, just basically an observer to, to there to learn. It gave me such a great appreciation of, first of all, how much coordination is required uh, in such a chaotic time um, and how uh, how organized everyone can become so quickly to support the the families that just need the most need that support in that time. Right. I think I think what's most important about all of that is um, you know, then Chairman Jim Hall, when he was testifying on Capitol Hill about this, he he was questioned about, you know, well, why is it the federal government's responsibility? Mm-hmm. And and Chairman Hall's comment back, I, I'll never be able to completely characterize it, but basically what he was saying was, my gosh, you know, these are U.S. citizens in many cases who have lost everything. And as public servants, this is the least we can do is mm-hmm. to try and help them at their worst moment. And what we found when we began to build the program inside the NTSB, and I think Frank can attest to that, Frank and I've worked a couple of accidents together over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the the investigators wanted to help. Um, the challenge was that um, it it was they didn't have training to do it. Um, it would, was taking them away from their primary job, which was fact gathering and analysis. And for many, it kind of dealing with the the significant emotional impact, it kind of took them off their game. And away from what they really needed to focus on. And so um, I think it took a little bit um, for us to get to where there was a level of comfort. Um, But I think I think now it's safe to say that investigators don't really want to go out and work on an accident unless they have um, somebody from TDA who can provide some help to them. So I thought that the greatest challenge for me would be convincing the industry that that was the right thing to do and getting them on board. Mm-hmm. And I think convincing some of our own investigators that it was, you know, the right thing to do and get on board because they were afraid that, um, you know, the one thing that is most important to us at NTSB is our independence, mm-hmm. that we can only do the great work that we do if we maintain that independence and neutrality. And by bringing a family assistance program into the agency, the fear was 
that it would then begin to influence the investigators, that there would be pressure on the investigators to do certain things in a certain way. And by building a firewall, which is basically what we have, a firewall that exists where, where the family assistance program does not influence the investigation. The investigation mm-hmm. provides information that can be provided to the families. Um, I think it has become, you know, very successful in that regard, a very successful model. Um, it's scalable. You can have a very small family center of two or three families in some cases to mm-hmm. a very large one where I've, you know, I've managed a family assistance center in Rhode Island with, you know, six or 700 family members um, and translating briefings in five different languages. So mm-hmm. there's, there's just a whole range, but it's very scalable. We put together a joint family support operations center and it's the nerve center for all things family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's directly connected to the investigative operations center so that we're coordinating the release of information and all those other things that need to take place. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of uh, what I was trying to get at. You know, we had a few, we had people at that training from major airlines. We also had people at the training from like city operations of transportation right. organizations and right. the span of the, you know, mm-hmm. the difference between those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really understand going into it that yes, everyone, everyone from right. all these different areas would really benefit from this training. And I think what's most important in, in the, in the business of, of, in the aftermath of, of large accidents, when you're working with a number of families, you hear the term mass fatality, mass fatality management. I think what's most important and what this program, I think, allows for is, is to not lose sight of the individual. Mm. Um, you know, that, that we tend to say the families when in fact they're really, you know, 500 people who mm. deal with loss in a very different way who come to it from a very different place, who have different stressors. Um, and, and you have to be able to kind of sift through that. I think one of the examples that I'll share quickly um, and that I shared with Frank was um, in Rhode Island, we brought the Egyptian families from Cairo to Providence, Rhode Island in November. Hmm. Um, they had no winter clothing. They were put on an aircraft in the middle of the night. The only thing they knew was the plane had crashed in their loved one was missing. That's what they were told. And and they get to Rhode Island and we buy them, the airline buys them winter clothing, which is now a U.S. clothing, which is not their, their country clothing. We put them in a strange hotel and we feed them American food. And you could just, the, the tension was palpable. You didn't have to speak their language. You could feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went into the dining hall one morning or to the, the, um, dining area one morning and you could just feel it. You could just feel the tension. And I, I remember thinking, my God, you know, what can I do? I mean, I'm going to go in there and brief them and tell them everybody died in this accident. What can, is there anything I can do to provide them some comfort? And I, I remember fretting about it for a period of time. And then going and finding the hotel manager and saying to the hotel manager, is there any way we can find out how, how to feed them their, their food? You know, mm-hmm. um, something like that, anything like that. And he said, Oh, we have a chef that just transferred to New York City last week. He's from Cairo. Let me get him. So mm-hmm. he, he brings the chef back. I wake up the next morning and I walk into the dining area and there's silence. All you have are people eating eating and eating. And you could just, you could feel the difference because they had that comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, it wasn't, it wasn't high level sophisticated counseling services. It wasn't any of that kind of stuff. It was, it would be like me needing a bowl of mashed potatoes, um, Mm -hmm. when I was really stressed out. And so it seems simple in some ways, but on, on another level, Sometimes that's what it takes to be able to help people. It's mm-hmm. a hand on their shoulder. It's, it's, a, it's a smile or a look that you give them. It's taking a minute just to ask them how they are or, you know, finding their, the, their native food. 
um, something that provides them some comfort in the midst of this terrible event that takes place. And that program is sort of structured to be able to help with that whole range of things. Mm-hmm. Frank, I I joined NTSB in 1997, and so it was just a few weeks shy of the one-year anniversary of when TWA Flight 800 um, crashed the explosion. And I know that the NTSB was in the midst of a couple of other really high-profile, large aviation um, investigations at that time. And I'm just curious from an investigator's perspective, you know, what was it like to know that you had an, an, a group of people who are going to be coming in and helping to meet the needs of the families while you all were, were a small agency? So <laughs> knowing that there were, I think, about three really significant large investigations that happened all around that same time, what was that like? Well, I, I need to back up a little bit, and, and I want to follow on with what Sharon said. It was, we didn't realize, in a way, the gift that we had. At the time, we, were, we from the investigative ranks, were opposed to this being an NTSB uh, responsibility, in a way. And Sharon summed it up really well. Uh, you know, it's the independence uh, concern, in a way. It's the idea that in, investigators will, you know, We'll be spending too much time trying to provide separate information for TDA to work with the families. And I know that I don't want that to sound the way it may. And it's not at all that this is not important. It's crucial that the families uh, get the um, service and relief that they need. Um, yeah, but it was really uh, that question about that wall that Sharon had mentioned. We were kind of wondering, oh, my gosh, how's how's this going to work? Is this something that the NTSB should be taking on? Um, and um, and to TDA's credit, it has worked really well. I, I think I can speak for most of the, um, you know, there were, I wasn't an old timer at the time. Now I'm an old timer, but I can say <laughs> that there were old timers uh, and even myself it was rather uh, relatively younger at the time that we we were we were not on board. I'll just say, and, and for those reasons, uh, and again, not because it somebody it, it was an important function that needed it needed to be uh, provided. We were just kind of curious ourselves whether that was something the NTSB should be uh, you know responsible for. But again, it's worked out really well, um, and it really. Uh, you know, we certainly understand how important it is, we, the investigative ranks. But uh, as Sharon mentioned, it's it's in a lot of ways, we, we can't provide additional information uh, to the families. They're, they're getting information that is publicly available, but they're going to get it a little sooner as they deserve, uh, as sh- should, than the general public uh, just beforehand. But otherwise, it's not, we're not adding necessarily a new layer so much. But TDA has done such a good job, I think, to uh, minimize the impact on the investigative staff, but still provide this this function, this really important function. That um, uh, and and Sharon's right. I think it, it especially in our field offices, they go out uh, quite a bit more than we do at headquarters. They're dealing with these issues perhaps on a smaller scale, uh, from you know having a mass uh, a major accident, but to the families, they're they're massively affected, and so they still need. The understanding. They need to know what's going on. They need to know about the process. And I think that's a lot of what, um, you know, certainly they deserve and what TDA provides keeps them in the loop on the process and the, and the progress of the investigation. So I, I think it's, it's worked out extremely well. Uh, and they, they certainly provide a, they offload some of the work that, uh, investigators would otherwise have to do. And I, I can just tell you back when I was an investigator, I had to do that a couple of times as, as an investigator in charge. Probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done is trying to, uh, you know, comfort uh, families who have just lost somebody here. And, and it's, it's, it's a very difficult job, but uh, TDA has done a great job at it. Yeah. Sharon, I'm, we've spent a lot of time certainly talking about our external support for, for people who are impacted by our investigations. But I know that the TDA staff even um, has recognized needs of our own investigative staff and has actually put in place some some different programs um, to meet to meet the needs of of the investigators. Can you talk a little bit about some of those um, mm-hmm. things that you've been able to bring to the agency as well? Sure. Yeah. In the in when I first came to the NTSB, I I come from my background is in mental health. 
So mm-hmm. I came um, to the agency as a licensed mental health counselor. And one of the first things they asked me to do was to review the standing EAP program, the Employee Assistance Program, which every federal agency is required to have. Um, so I took a look at that, and it was very clear to me that the NTSB being unique, you know, launching to accidents, doing all the work that we do, needed something more than just an off-the-shelf employee assistance program. Mm-hmm. And so I, we were able to uh, renew the contract um, and, and provide for 24-hour EAP support um, and also have counselors travel with us so that they're with us on scene. Um, Stephanie Matonic has kind of picked up the baton uh, where I left off and has done quite a bit of training, stress training specifically related to the work that we do, but stress training in general. Um, and then she's in the process of developing a peer support program. So that better equips people who are in the field to help one another for the team members to help one another. It gives them a little bit more of a, uh, more, one more tool in their toolbox, if you will, to provide that emotional support and, um, and uh, that's needed when they're on scene. But we do have counselors also who can travel with us to the scene of an accident if needed. Um, to provide that support um, while we're in the on-scene phase of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. The unique thing about this investigation is that the TWA-800 aircraft has been reconstructed um, and is in the NTSB training center and has been there for about two decades. Frank, can you describe what we have there and uh, and how it's been used for aviation uh, accident investigation training over the years. So you, you're exactly right. We really uh, do not um, go through the effort of reconstructing uh, too often. There there really needs to be a driver to that or a reason behind that. And and in many aspects, it's uh, if there's been an in-flight breakup because mm-hmm. it it allows us to get a better idea once we start to recover and maybe reconstruct uh, some of the wreckage to get an idea what may have come off first. So there's 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 evidence in the wreckage that will help us to some degree. Of course, there's the idea that, you know, the, the, the first pieces that were found along the flight path or in any flight path uh, will likely be telling you that same idea. This is a very good chance that these pieces were the first ones that came off. Let's mm-hmm. take a, a, a better look at those. Could have been some pre-existing damage fatigue or corrosion um, uh, in, in a general sense. Um, and, and, of course, there were other pieces that early in the wreckage that, that we knew came off early. Mm-hmm. We knew they came off first. They were all around the center wing tank. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, some aspects of the center wing tank itself, some aspects of the structure and the surrounding structure there. And uh, so the, our, our focus uh, was immediately drawn to that. Once we started to recover more pieces, right, this played out over several weeks up in New York, um, and, and so, uh, it started out in, uh, at this hangar in, in Long Island that we were fortunate to be able to utilize that we were able to start reconstructing, uh, the center wing tank alone. It was, uh, in, in comparison to what we have now, it was a much smaller reconstruction, but it allowed us to start to see things a little bit. Um, but at some point it was decided and Chairman Hall was a big, um, uh, believer in this. I mean, uh, it was another one of those things that investigators or, you know, we were like, well, do we really need to go that big with this reconstruction? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes engineers uh, real, have to realize they're not as smart as they think they are or, or <laughs> investigators. But but no, I, I'm kind of joking there. It was actually a very wise move by the chairman to, to press for a much larger reconstruction. I think that we're talking about a, a 90 to 95 foot reconstruction that we eventually uh, uh, executed up there in, in, uh, in Long Island. And the reason for that, uh, it was quite smart, I think, to, to allow us, first off, to make sure we're seeing everything we need to everywhere around the center wing tank, because we knew that that's where this event had, had initiated, but also to demonstrate to others. We had to convince ourselves, we had to convince the FBI, we had to mm-hmm. convince the parties, and, and I would say the public. It's it's a demonstration of the, the commitment and the extent that we needed to go to here, I think, to really prove to ourselves, but to prove to everyone else. And so that reconstruction that we've had in, in the training center all these years is is the same reconstruction that eventually that we, we had uh, up in, in New York, 
to facilitate the, the investigation. It was quite important. Um, and, and, uh, yes, that was moved down and, and, uh, a big part of the training center, um, uh, soon after that. So it was really crucial for the investigation, the, the reconstruction was, but then it, then it was eventually utilized for the training center. Sharon, the, we, we were able to use the reconstruction for training for, like Leah mentioned, for about two decades, thanks to um, the willingness of the families to, to really let that be used that way. Can you just right. um, talk a little bit about th- that agreement? Mm-hmm. I, and I will s- say again, f- having seen the wreckage, and I think every time I see the reconstruction, I'm just in awe of the work of the agency and the investigators and everyone that was involved. It's right. just an amazing, you know, thing to see and, and knowing that it resemble you know, right. It's evidence of the work, Frank, like you said, that went into this particular investigation, but it's something that we've really limited access to. Right. So it really has been very intentionally used for training. Can you right. explain why that sure. is? I know that's intentional. Sure. Yeah. The, the reconstruction was actually done originally in Calverton, New York, up on Long Island. And when we decided to create the training center, uh, we, the agency, had an interest in using it here for training purposes. And so I approached the families and asked if they would be willing to allow us to relocate it um, and to use it uh, for the purpose of training. Uh, they were very clear that they were completely behind the use of it for training. They felt that um, if it could teach investigators something to help accidents from happening in the future, that then maybe their loved ones didn't die in vain. Um, Mm -hmm. Something that's very important to families in these kind of tragic loss scenarios. And so um, they were happy with it as long as it didn't become a museum piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were... um, they, they were a bit uncomfortable about the idea that people would be able to view the seats because the seats of the aircraft are back in the upper level. Mm-hmm. Um, but that if it was for the purpose of training investigators, like survival factors investigators, they certainly would support that. They didn't want it to be a museum piece and they didn't want it to be something that people simply came in and kind of, you know, gawked at, if you will. Um, but that it would be managed in a very respectful way, um, and, and with a, a, an homage, an homage, a homage to, um, uh, their family members and a recognition of the tragedy and the loss that was experienced. And so they were very clear about that line. And yes, we have held to that. Um, mm-hmm. we have, um, in order for someone to, um, view it, um, it has to be done as part of an, a tutorial or a course um, that we're offering at the training center. We don't simply just let you know people in the door without providing instruction for that. And the families have been um, very supportive of that um, throughout the, the time period that it's been at the training center. And in July of this year, we announced that we'd be decommissioning that reconstruction. Um, what does that mean, and what is the process for the deconstruction of the wreckage? Mm-hmm. So, so our training center lease is expiring. Um, we mm-hmm. needed to make a decision um, with regard to the reconstruction um, because we would have no place to house it at the end of the lease at the training center. And so we communicated that with the family members. We indicated to them that we believed that we had used it pretty much as much as we could, um, that our our training modalities that we're using are, are shifting. No longer are people coming into large training facilities, um, but are doing things more in a virtual environment. And mm-hmm. so we believe that it was time where we could document the wreckage, use it in any kind of um, digital format for virtual training and other kinds of training, and that we would do what is referred to as a controlled destruction on the... Um, on the reconstruction to be sure that none of the pieces of the aircraft ended up out in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Here comes the mower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Okay. So, uh, Frank, as, as what Sharon just mentioned, um, we're doing a 3D scan for archiving the, the wreckage. How will this be used to support accident investigation training in the future? Well, I mean, I think that uh, it, it, certainly the, from the training standpoint of the reconstruction, I, I, again, I, for us, it was initially, it, well, it was certainly used for the investigation. It was quite important, but we had so much work that went into this. And I, I think the the value, the training value, I, I think it really it's, uh, depends on who you talk to and who's coming into those classes. I think from a, from a 30,000 foot level, it really represents um, you know, in, in various ways that, again, the, the extent that the safety board will go to in order to address the issues in the way that it needs to. And, um, but it also represents, um, in, in ways, uh, you know, our party system, again, the amount of work that, that went into this. And I, I really need to highlight that it, 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 the number of local and state and federal resources, as well as the parties that were, they were all so important to helping us recover the wreckage and in some cases, you know, examine and, and document things. But it, it should be a demonstration of our, our party system as well. And, and people should understand that. And hopefully they did. And I think also, you know, the, the reconstruction, it, it helps to highlight and visualize some of the issues that we had uh, in, in the investigation. Because, you know, for everybody that's seen that reconstruction, and, and Stephanie's mm -hmm. exactly right, the number of times that I've gone to the training center, for somebody that worked on the investigation, still walking through that door, it, it's, it really hits you. And, it, and uh, But it, it allows, I would hope, people to understand the specific, even from a technical standpoint, the fuel tank flammability, the, uh, the wiring issues, they're mm -hmm. on full display in a, in a way. And I think it, it helps uh, make the message that you, um, that you may not always get, you know, reading a report sometimes. Mm -hmm. it, it is, it helps, uh, uh, make that more apparent. Um, as far as going forward and, and far as 3D scanning, uh, again, that's something that, you know, we didn't have years ago at all. The, the technology and the capabilities are much greater now than they used to be. Uh, back in the day, uh, we, we, we definitely tape measure in a, in a helicopter ride or a cherry picker or something else. And, and nowadays, mm -hmm. uh, the, the capabilities that exist there with 3D scanning equipment, with our, the drones that we use and the capability to, to map things and to do it and, and to preserve the data. And you can do it quickly, by the way, too. You can preserve the data and you can manipulate, manipulate the data so that you can you can get the view that you need to, to maybe address certain aspects. You know, that's, otherwise you're looking at the way of compiling photographs and, 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 and things like that back in the old days. So the 3D scanning um, that will be utilized to some degree with the reconstruction, but also something that we've been utilizing much, much more in investigations. Uh, it, you know, we're, we're losing in a way one aspect uh, at least from the standpoint of the reconstruction, you're losing that physical presence, but we're kind of gaining in a way other ways to view it. And I would, mm -hmm. I would even say to, to, um, that you're, as you're looking at that, however it may be, and we have not really figured out all the ways that we're going to capture this and, and, and provide it perhaps going forward. But I, I would hope that it, we allow or enable as people are looking at some aspect of the, of a virtual reconstruction of, of TWA 800, that they can also have access or click on links that pull up the report, pull up issues, uh, from the docket, pull up issues about the, the FA, the, the changes the FA pushed forward and how you inert a fuel tank. All these things, I think, in a way, they're all there for you. You can kind of, um, um, put them all together to answer the questions that you need. So I, we're still trying to figure out, I think, how to make that the most uh, to optimize that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there's a lot of capability there. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're getting to the end of our of our podcast. Um, but I want to ask the both of you before we close out, um, what were some of the most memorable aspects of being a part of this investigation or learning about it, Sharon, for you? Um, I know that we have a lot of lessons learned from this investigation. But if you have not... Um, shared already, what, what is something that really stands out to you about what we learned from this investigation that you'd like to share? So I, so I think for me, the importance of family assistance and providing information to family members and doing it 
quickly and um, doing it regularly so that they're informed of what's going on with the process. Mm -hmm. Um, The second is to have good relationships with our federal partners, um, the traveling public, and really the taxpayers who pay our salaries um, deserve to have one voice coming from their government and not, you know, dueling professionals in front of a microphone. Um, and then, you know, the last thing for me from NTSB, and I think of this often now as the managing director, that when we make recommendations and we get pushback and we get that a lot, and well, we get that often, um, on recommendations like positive train control and fuel inerting and all kinds of other life-saving recommendations that we make, it can often be very frustrating. You know, you feel like you're a small agency with this voice, you know, shouting out ways to um, to improve safety. And I know both of you have done a lot of that over the years too. Um, but you have to stay the course that if you've done the work and you've gathered the facts, you've done the analysis, you know the recommendations will save lives, you have to keep at it. And even if the technology doesn't exist when we make recommendations, if we keep pushing for it, the rec- they'll find a way. Um, the, the technology that's used today didn't exist when we made the recommendations. They, right. they developed the technology. And so mm-hmm. that's the, the frustration and the excitement for me is if you can just stay the course and not get frustrated, often there'll, there'll be a way um, where a safety improvement can make, can, can become. And, and so for me, when people say, you know, how many accident reports have you reviewed over the years? I like to really think more about all the ones I never had to look at because they didn't mm-hmm. occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the real benefit in, in keeping with it. But it can be, it can be very challenging to motivate ourselves and to continue to stay motivated, um, in the face of others who, um, you know, seem to not share our excitement sometimes for the recommendations. Those mm-hmm. are the things that I think I learned the most. Of yeah. Now. Thanks. Frank? Well, I kind of touched on this, I think, earlier, and I, I, I'll just go back to it a little bit because I think for me it really was um, uh, one of the big takeaways, and again, certainly for me, but I think even for the agency, and that is, um, you know, we, we have a process. The process largely has been the same in, for the 32 plus years, almost 33 that I've been at the safety board. And that is to, to, to not really speculate. Don't get distracted. Uh, focus on the facts. Follow the facts where they lead you. And, uh, you know, it was too easy to, um, in a way, be distracted with everything that was going on. Again, there was so many people. Uh, there were so many people and individuals and agencies up there that were helping us. We mm-hmm. we were very thankful for that, but it was it was overwhelming. And but I think if we just kind of step back and distill it back into our process, we have investigative groups. We have a process where we provide information, um, uh, factual information when when it can be validated. And we did that then. We have done it uh, since then. But it's for me, it was reaffirmation in a way that this is important and it was extremely important in this one because uh, of, of all the distractions and competing in a way theories, uh, you know, different people saying uh, certain things. We, we simply followed the facts and we were very diligent. Uh, we didn't speculate, but uh, I think as Sharon mentioned, uh, you know, we, we continued um, uh, focusing on those issues and continued focusing on the recommendations. And it, you know, um, I'd like to think that the persistence of the board and, and highlighting these issues on the most wanted list, uh, played a large part in, in helping that get done. It took a long time, but eventually, uh, there were, um, changes that were put in place that really made a big difference. So, I mean, that, that's one of the big takeaways for me. I, and again, the other thing I had mentioned before that is a constant reminder for people that we don't just, first off, don't find a black box and read it out and write up the report. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, the recorders didn't, um, they, their power was terminated um, almost as soon as, uh, at, right at the time of the explosion. That mm-hmm. tells you something, by the way, that's a piece of evidence, but we didn't really even have those uh, to provide too much um, information for us. But 
my point being that it's the information that doesn't exist. It's the it's it's things that the evidence suggests did not happen. They're just as important as what the evidence suggests did happen. And and um, I think this is a really good example of that as well. Yeah. Thanks. Stephanie, do you have any final thoughts before we close out? I do. Just thank you, Sharon and, and Frank. As Leah and I mentioned when we were preparing, this has been a conversation that we have just both really wanted to to have on the podcast. So we thank you for your willingness and time to to share your experience with us. Um, Frank, like I mentioned, hearing you and, and so many others give presentations um, and talk about this uh, investigation of the years has been very interesting. I feel like every time I learn something new. So I would encourage people to check out the report, like you said, to really just learn about the extent to which the NTSB investigated those theories, like we mentioned, to prove that that was not what happened. Um, it's just, uh, I'm always in awe every, every time I, I see, you know, see the, the reconstruction and hear people talk about it. Um, just the thorough work that the agency did. Yeah, and I just want to echo Stephanie's thanks to both you, Sharon, and Frank about uh, allowing us to have this conversation today. Um, this has been the the TWA 800 um, accident investigation is really uh, a pivotal moment for NTSB. And so to be able to discuss this and and get a, a different perspective from you all um, and a, a direct perspective rather from you all um, is really, really great. But yeah, to our listeners, um, the report, which is how many pages Frank? Gosh, you're putting me on the spot here. I will say uh, it's a few hundred pages, but the doc, but the docket is is massive, and the, the docket should be available as well to people. The yep. So if just over 400 pages, right? So if anyone uh, would like to see all of the details and and read all of the information and and report, it is available online at ntsb.gov and with our docket. Thank you, Stephanie, for being my co-host. And thank you, James Anderson, for being the producer that makes all of this come together so seamlessly. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.